If you're committed to transitioning to a new role outside of the classroom, let me give you some advice. Don't try to navigate this journey all on your own. The Teacher Career Coach course will walk you step-by-step through the entire process. When you sign up, you'll get help picking your career path, have access to a library of transition resumes for teachers written by a professional, and even gain access to a list of hundreds of companies that hire teachers. Most importantly, you'll join our exclusive private community to collaborate with others and network. I've dedicated my time putting together templates and resources to create the most thorough program to help save you time. Learn more about the Teacher Career Coach course at teachercareercoach.com forward slash course. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Williams. I think that there is one thing that is apparent to all educators right now, and that is that something has to change. There are so many things that need to be fixed in the education system, but often teachers feel powerless and feel like their voices just don't matter. That's why in this very important episode, I brought on the amazing Sharon McMahon. Sharon is a former high school government and law teacher who's earned a reputation as America's government teacher. During the historic 2020 election proceedings, she made an effort to educate the general public on political misinformation. Because Sharon is known for answering rapid fire questions on her viral Instagram, I'm asking her the top questions teachers have from this community about how the government can support teachers, what history should be taught in the classroom, and what to do if you're being accused of teaching critical race theory. I'm certain you'll learn a lot from this interview, and I urge you to listen until the very end when I share where to find resources and templates created with Sharon's advice to help us collectively fight for the change that education desperately needs. Hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh my gosh. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Sharon, for any of my audience who are not familiar with you, do you mind giving just a couple second introduction to who you are and why you are such an expert when it comes to everything (laughs) government? (laughs) Well, I was a government teacher, a government and law teacher for many years and studied, you know, those things at the graduate school level, of course, and have always just had a passion for learning about government, how government operates. I've been, this has been a passion topic of mine since I was probably 12 years old. So That's really the genesis of how I acquired the knowledge that I currently have. But what I do on Instagram and a lot of what I do on my podcast is I just share fact-based nonpartisan information about what's going on in the world and how the United States government can, how, how the United States government operates. So your Instagram is what led me to asking you to be on here today. I have followed you for a while just to 
learn a lot about how the government works. You are constantly sharing a lot of information. And what I really wanted to dive into is asking specific questions about how we can start to you know, push for a change and advocate for a change because I'm sure you've seen in some news articles, a lot of teachers are very unhappy mm. with what is going on in the classrooms and the school districts when it comes to funding. And they have a lot of questions. And I feel like sometimes it's outside of our radar what we can actually do to make a change collectively. The mm. very first question that I have is, who do you think teachers should reach out to in the government to start to advocate for the change? Mm. Well, there's multiple layers of you know, government that could be reached out to. There's multiple layers of who you could actually talk to, depending on how your individual state is structured, etc. So of course, things like your local school board, for many people, they are doing things like helping to create teacher salary schedules and what they're going to offer a teacher with a master's degree versus a, you know, master's degree plus 30, you know, like all of those kinds of things. So obviously your local school district, your local school board definitely has something to do with it. But I also think that we kind of overlook a lot of the state level people that are actually giving a lot of that money to the school board or to the school district. So reaching out to the people that represent you in your state legislature, whatever that's called in your state, the General Assembly or just the legislature or the House or whatever it is in your state, people that represent you are the people who are able to then influence their colleagues in the state legislature, especially if they know that this is an issue that is very important to their constituents. If they suddenly hear from 1000 teachers in a like a week, they're going to be like, dang, this is an issue. You know what I mean? So one of the biggest things I always tell people is that there is power in numbers and the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It absolutely does. So that actually goes to a second question that I had is, what's the best approach to ask for a change? You know, my heart wants to say salty because I feel salty, but my brain <laughs> and my gut says to keep it polite and professional. Mm -hmm. Really the best, the best thing you can do is to try to get as many people in on this as possible. Rarely does one email fix a societal problem, right? And this is a deep-seated societal issue that we are undervaluing education, we are undervaluing the teachers that spend all day with our children. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But this is not going to be solved by one teacher sending an email. It is going to be addressed when there is enough political will behind the issue. And by political will, I mean, where lawmakers perceive that people are up in arms about something and something must be done. So one example of that political concept of political will is with the recent um, COVID stimulus bills, right, where people got money deposited into their bank account, etc. There was a tremendous amount of political will to get that done. It was widely popular with the American population, widely popular with people in Congress because they knew how hurting the American people were because of what was going on. So 
tremendous amount of political will. That thing was pushed through Congress very quickly, et cetera, because they knew that the people um, needed it and wanted it. If it was one person writing a letter to their senator being like, hey, I'm really struggling over here, like that would not have the amount of change that would not have an, you know the people pushing the ball up the hill, so to speak, as having a lot of people do it. So one of the best things you can do is either join an organization that is already doing what it is that you are want to advocate for, because a lot of times they have the infrastructure, knowledge, connections, know-how that maybe you as an individual don't have. So don't underestimate joining an organization that fights for the type of change you want, but also consider being the leader in that situation. Consider being the person that makes five different email templates and passes them out to everybody at their school, everybody in their you know neighboring schools, et cetera, so that people have an easy place to start. People do want to advocate for change, but sometimes it is difficult to like, I don't have time to look up that information. I have stuff, I have papers to grade. I have lessons to plan. I have copies to make. I have children of my own. So if you make it really easy for them, you know, maybe spend an hour or two of your time researching who to send letters to, et cetera. And then you make a number of templates for them to choose from. So it's not everybody sending the same letter. That would have far more impact than just you picking up the phone or you sending an email. What type of change do you think is realistic to ask for? Pay raises, class sizes, um, what, what do you really think we should start with so that we're not asking for too much? Mm. I know it, it's when you have a system that is broken, you just want revolutionary change. You want you want to be like, we need the following 10 changes tomorrow. But I would suggest, and again, as a teacher, I get that. And I share that sentiment of like, of why is this hard? Here's what needs to happen. I absolutely understand that sentiment and where it's coming from. But I would suggest that the concept of relentless incrementalism is probably going to be far more effective than revolutionary change. People who are adver and by revolution, I don't mean we're going to like overthrow the schools. You know what I'm saying? Like big changes to the way schools are structured. First of all, humans naturally um, are somewhat averse to change. Teachers who are working in the system want it to change quickly and dramatically, but parents are a little bit, they don't like, they, they like their kids' school. They don't want to see radical change. Lawmakers don't want to be the person who is alone in standing up for something that is not popular because that hurts their chances at re-election, whereas they're more willing to take smaller, more incremental steps. So one of the districts that I have taught in in the past tied class size to teacher employment contracts. And that actually was incredibly useful at reducing class sizes, that it was written into teacher contracts, that if you were teaching just like an on-level graduation requirement class at high school level, that you would not have more than 25 students in that class. Or if you were teaching like a specialty class, if you're teaching band, obviously you need more than 25 kids. But if you were teaching an upper class elective, you couldn't have more than 32 kids. If you were teaching first grade, you couldn't have more than 15. So that is one of those things that makes it incredibly hard for um, a district to backpedal on. 
right? If it's like in your contract. So I, I mean, pick, pick a target. True, seriously, <laughs> they all need to happen. So pick a target and try to get it written into your specific contracts. And that might be something to leverage your union for if you are a district that happens to have a union. But if you are not a district that has a union, that might need to be on, you would think the teacher level, they all work together and say, these are our realistic but very clear demands for next year's contract or else next year may look like this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody thinks we need smaller class sizes, right? There's nobody who's like, bigger is better when it comes to class sizes. There is a sweet spot of, we have enough students to do the activities and to have interesting input, et cetera, but not so many that it's just crowd control babysitting. So personally to me, one of the biggest things that would have made a difference for me in my happiness as a teacher is having a manageable number of students. One year as a high school teacher, I had 180 students. And that was, that is just too many. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why teachers burn out so quickly is you don't realize it until you go into literally any other profession and you don't experience it, but it's the decision fatigue of 180 tiny little decisions every day on top of knowing all the lesson plans, having to manage 180 people, Mm -hmm. grade 180 papers. Our brains just don't work that way. Mm, and it, it it absolutely is exhausting. That year that I had 180 students, I would literally come home from school and fall asleep on the couch. And I'm not even a napper. Like that's how exhausting it was, uh, just from a brain perspective. <laughs> and now you have 600,000 people asking you very hard <laughs> questions on Instagram and you're rapid fire answering them with ease. Mm. Well, it did, it did offer me a training ground. Having 180 students did offer me a training ground for what I'm doing now. I think that this is a great lead to my next question because when it comes to teacher class sizes, I think that that has to do a lot with funding and realistic funding for how many employees they can have. And one of the questions that I got from my audience was, bills include lines for money for schools, but it doesn't seem like the schools ever have any more funds. And actually Mm -hmm. reading that, like, I don't know if it's a question or just a grumpy statement, but... Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Is that accurate or is that just kind of our view of it mm-hmm. from our end? Mm-hmm. It, it, well, it's definitely the perception that very few teachers are like, wow, class sizes have really become more manageable this year. You know, like, does anybody actually say that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, some of this, of course, has to do with the fact that it is sometimes difficult to hire enough teachers in various subjects uh, and in specific locations that even if you have the allocations for the, the actual professionals that you may not be able to find them. But I do think in some ways it might be useful if money was uh, better earmarked, if it was, if they did not have the ability to say, actually, we're going to go ahead, put in a sculpture garden. instead of hiring five new teachers. Of course, I'm making that up. But the perception is, why are you prioritizing that? You know what I mean? Like that is, do you understand that the teachers in your building are the most important resource that you have? And I, from the point of view of someone who does work 
in education from a professional development point of view, I see that at the end of the year. And I see schools and districts have extra funding for professional development that they're just trying to spend. And I believe that that's probably the same case for textbooks as Mm -hmm. well. Why wouldn't they be able to actually take some of the money that was designated for textbooks or for professional development funds and actually give teacher raises with that fund? Do you Mm -hmm. have any insight into that? Well, they just, they they certainly could, but it it's the way that the funding bills are structured, right? It's the way that um, you know perhaps an, uh, the estimates of how much how much this is going to cost to actually replace all of the English books. Perhaps those were overestimated. They got the funding for it, and then it, the bill came in less than they thought it was going to, and that and then because of the way government funding is structured in general, it's difficult to just then take that money out of that pool and place it in another one. Really, the teacher raises need to come at the beginning and not with what's left over for textbooks at the end of the year. And that leads to another question. Why does inflation continue to go up and other industries see pay raises, but teacher salaries always seem to stay a little bit more stagnant compared Mm -hmm. to other industries. Mm -hmm. Some of that is the nature of being a government employee. Of course, people who are elected officials, it's rarely popular for them to try to say, we need more money. Let's raise taxes. Let's increase funding. It's rarely a popular move with voters. But um, some of that also just has to do with the fact that school funding in most areas is tied to property taxes. And in many locations, like in the state I live in, in order to raise property taxes, you need to have the voters approve it. Those voter referendums can be challenging to push through sometimes, especially when you have a community that has a lot of older people um, where they're like, I don't have kids in school. And I'm not saying that all older people don't like schools, but it can be more difficult to convince people who are not, they don't perceive a direct benefit from the current school system. Or their perception is the school is fine. What are you complaining about? The school is fine. Like be quiet and do your job. You get the summers off. You get the summers off. You know, I feel like that's a lot of their attitude. And even personal struggles from someone who knows that teachers need increases of salaries. When I see it living in Los Angeles with property taxes, when I see it come up on voting, my heart votes the way that it has to, but I squirm a little bit because it impacts me in multiple ways where, you know, is this even going to balance out in the end? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times they fail to draw the direct line between if you vote for this, we will reduce class size by three students. Do you know what I mean? We just have this kind of nebulous concept of like lower class sizes, but what does that actually look like? And they fail to accurately produce any kind of data that shows, wow, we're at 35 kids in fourth grade and it really needs to come down to 30. And if we approve this, then we can have that. Instead, it just seems it's like this very, like, I'm just gonna, when does it end? I'm gonna keep paying more and more and more and more and more money. One of the other districts that I've worked in, instead of having the local um, schools have their being funded by directly by property taxes, it was a county school system instead of a city school system. And the 
county collected all the property taxes, there was no such thing as a voter referendum to approve property tax adjustments. Sometimes actually property taxes went down if the schools had like a lower enrollment than they initially anticipated and they didn't have the same budget request as they thought they were going to. There were a couple of times where property taxes went down slightly, but the county collected all the money for the entire county, which meant the super rich parts of the county, the less advantaged portions of the county, and then it more equally distributed that money to the schools in the county, instead of having the city of X, which is a, a more of a community that has a lower socioeconomic status, instead of having it divvied up by small districts, small cities that can have sometimes adverse effects where we have we've produced this these systems around the country where if you live in a nice area you have nice schools and if you live in a less advantaged area you don't have schools that are as nice and it's kind of producing this uh almost two americas scenario of did you grow up in a in an area that had quote unquote nice schools or did you grow up in an area that had like the again, proverbial, less nice schools. And I, from my own experience of leaving teaching, I worked in two of the complete polar opposites from a um, very underfunded, low-income school. It was one of the, I think it was the lowest performing um, with students that were living in hotel rooms, um, mm -hmm. homeless shelter students. And then I moved to Los Angeles where I taught the gifted and talented program with student actors. And mm. for me, seeing the difference of how both of those schools functioned was very eye-opening and also really sad to see even just the change in teacher pay from one to the other. And I know some of that came with the cost of living, but compared to other school districts in the same area of Los mm -hmm. Angeles, I was still getting paid quite a bit more because of the cost of living around me. And that's where, you know, teachers are going to try and push towards one type of school and take away. And honestly, my heart was in the first school more. That mm -hmm. last school district is what ultimately led me out is I, I didn't feel the same connection with, with education there. Mm. Makes sense. I get it. I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk. There are some teachers who are concerned about whether or not they're actually still qualified for teacher loan forgiveness, if that's even a thing anymore. It felt like there's a lot of buzz around Betsy DeVos took it away or she's not going to take it away. And then people are really concerned and confused on what's going on with that. Mm. Well, there have not, there's been a, a new round of of loan forgiveness that's not specific to teachers, but is specific to people who attended for-profit colleges that perhaps defrauded them. There were, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of loans for those kind of schools wiped out. So if that ended up being you, where you maybe did a couple of years at a, a college that then went bankrupt, you could qualify for loan forgiveness. And of course, there are still teacher loan forgiveness programs, but only for teachers who are working in schools that qualify. It's not, it's not for all teachers. And 
that can be, you know, that it, that can be a double-edged sword. It can encourage some teachers to work at those schools in which they might be, be able to qualify for loan forgiveness, but it also then encourages them to leave as soon as that loan forgiveness is completed and leave for what is perceived as greener pastures instead of having all, all teachers have, have this program available to a lot of teachers instead of just a small number of teachers. Why wouldn't it be just allowed for all teachers. I know you're not the decision maker here, but. <laughs> sure. I mean, the the thinking is that a, a lot of teachers, a lot of pe- the public perception is you make $70,000 a year and you have summers off. That's enough money. You know, like there's this public perception that um, that's enough money. I don't make that much. Why should you make, why should you make more than, so much more than me? Um, and that of course, we all, if you're a teacher, you already know uh, a lot of the flaws in that logic. But that's really the reason is that it's a difficult sell to the average American who maybe doesn't even make as much as a as a teacher does. If you could change one single thing about the education system, what would it be? Mm. It, it absolutely would be the way and the manner in which schools are funded. I mean, if I could wave a magic wand and then just suddenly teachers had the respect they deserved, sure, I'd take that. <laughs> but it's much more difficult to legislate what is happening in between people's ears, right? Like we, from a public policy perspective, changing the way schools are funded would absolutely change the game for a lot of teachers. If we changed the way governments collected money for schools and allocated money for schools, if schools that were located in more economically disadvantaged areas have the same funding as the schools in the more wealthy areas, if we incentivize the best teachers to stay in the areas of greatest need, if we, you know, like if we just, there's a variety of reasons why I feel like it's important, but if we decouple local property taxes and school funding, that would be a very significant change. Is that something that teachers should potentially start advocating for on their state level? Or is that one of those revolutionary things that might be too big (laughs) to continue to ask for? I mean, it's happened in other states. Like I've, like I said, it has. It happened in a district that I taught in in Maryland, where schools are run on the county level, and that would be a significant change for many states. You know, in California in particular, I've taught in California as well. Um, there are often separate school districts for secondary schools and a different school district for elementary schools in the same community. And that is like, that's a weird thing for people to get wrap their mind around instead of having one, uh, one school district for everybody. But that could be an idea that maybe your local legislatures have never heard before. That may be an idea where they're like, you know what, let's study it. Let's, let's look into that and see whether that would really be a game changer for our state. I, what is the harm in asking for it? Even though we have to accept that it's not going to happen one month from today, what is the harm in advocating for the area of, uh, you know, greatest impact? Is this something that if all of the audience listening collectively even pinpointed a specific senator who's 
very pro-teacher or constantly advocating for teachers, if they propose this type of solution and continue to push and talk about it and talk about it, do you think that could help get it on the radar a little bit faster? Absolutely. I mean, again, this might be an idea that a state legislator has never heard before. Maybe they are very pro-public school, but they have never been an educator. And so they they don't, maybe they don't know. So Lizzie Warren, if you're listening, I hope you don't mind me calling you Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing though, is that of course, most schools are funded. The vast majority of school funding is done at a state level and a local level, right? It's not, it's not d- done at a federal level. Of course, the federal government is paying for a lot of uh, special education funding, but this is something that states could change if they wanted to. And I think if teachers actually provided their state legislators with some data about what it looks like to have schools that are decoupled from local property taxes, that could be a way to create change in a manner that is not as politically unpopular. You're giving me so much inspiration and hopefully everybody listening is also feeling inspired by this. I did want to pivot a little bit and Mm -hmm. start picking your brain from a government teacher perspective for anyone who's still staying in the classroom. Um, Just to learn from you, what advice would you give any teachers who are facing backlash over critical race theory? Mm. Well, here's the thing is that the vast majority of public school teachers would already know that this is not a topic that we are like, and now second graders, let's dive into our daily CRT lesson. You know what I mean? Like we we as teachers already know that that's not a thing. And so I really think instead of arguing, instead of being like, you're wrong, you're wrong, Mrs. Smith, you're wrong. Here's all the reasons you're wrong even though they might be wrong, (laughs) um, that's not the most effective way to diffuse a conflict. It's not the most effective way to just tell somebody repeatedly how wrong they are. So I think rather than just continually trying to prove somebody wrong, I would focus more on conflict de-escalation on making sure that they understand, listen, I have your kid's best interest at heart. I absolutely love having your child in my classroom. My goal is for students to get a balanced education. I want to make you feel comfortable with what it is that they're learning in school. Feel free to contact me if you ever have any specific concerns, etc. The The conflict de-escalation is probably more important than proving the point of how right you are and how wrong they are, because that ultimately is not that productive. Uh, Yeah, I listened to Angela Watson has a podcast, Truth For Teachers. It's episode 235. I noted down that's wonderful for anyone who needs even more information about how to do so respectfully and help with kind of the dialogue between it, because it is important to just have those, once again, salty conversations with your friends, like, ugh, another one, but Mm -hmm. keep it neutral with your parents, because ultimately, having that relationship with them is the most important thing yes especially yep. for your students and and being able to build that trust I know it's really hard and divisive right now but building a relationship of trust and open communication with yes. them but in a place that's setting some very clear boundaries so that you don't feel like you have to explain yourself because you were the you used the word race in class mm-hmm, or mm-hmm because the word equity came up. I love that. What history event are kids not learning about that you wish they would teach in schools? Mm. I mean, there are a lot, 
But again, I also understand as a social studies teacher that we have a finite amount of time, right? Like I get that, um, that we don't have all the time in the world. But I really feel like we need to be focusing on telling the, you know, the story of America, not just through the lens of wealthy white men. <laughs> that, that there are a lot of people of color and a lot of women that helped make America what it is today. It doesn't mean that we pretend that George Washington wasn't real. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that we ignore those, you know, those kind of people and their contributions. But I really just feel like instead of saying we have to be teaching about the Tulsa race riots, instead of pinpointing a specific event, I just feel like overall, we need more women and more people of color. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like that's where people are struggling so much, even when it comes to what they are or aren't allowed to talk about with current events that are making history. Mm -hmm. For example, do you think that Black Lives Matter, the movement, belongs in school discussions? Mm. Of course it does. It absolutely does. I mean, if you were a teacher in 1968, are you going to ignore the assassinations of Martin Luther King and ignore the assassinations of both of the Kennedys and of Malcolm X just because it was politically divisive? That seems ridiculous today, right? Of course we're going to talk about that. Of course we're going to talk about how, you know, that that happened. There's, of course a lot more, it's a lot t more tender, though, to talk about issues that are ha currently happening than to talk about something that happened decades ago. When things are currently happening, there tends to be a lot more sensitive feelings surrounding it. So I do think we have to be mindful of how we say things, how we phrase things. We have to be mindful of the fact that children are being raised in homes that express a variety of different viewpoints. But I don't think we're doing anyone a service by just pretending that an incredibly large social justice movement is not occurring. We're, you know, ignoring that something is occurring doesn't make it not occurring. So of course it does, just like the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s belonged in the classroom. I think the hardest thing to do is to be empathetic for all students because you may have students in your classroom that you naturally start to lean towards being more empathetic towards whether mm -hmm. or not you want to acknowledge that. But if you're leaning up way politically, I personally struggled with this. I was teaching in 2016. And after the election year, I realized I had students who were very excited that their candidate won at the same time that I had students who were very nervous that their aunts and uncles who were living in Muslim countries were no longer going to be able to fly to America to visit them ever again. And mm -hmm. being able to express something happened, it's a big deal. And let's talk about it in a way that's respectful to 
all of the students at the same time is Mm -hmm. one of the Mm -hmm. biggest challenges that teachers are facing this day. And just taking a step back and, and feeling your own heart when you realize that you're leaning one way or the other and alienating even the students that you may think have the advantage over the other students mm, is mm-hmm. something I think everybody needs to practice from time to time, mm. which is very hard for my very liberal mouth to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to teach students how to speak with empathy, because that is something that even if we say as teachers, we need to have empathy for students whose political values are not the same as our own. It is true that that we need to do that 100%. But also, if we do not explicitly teach students how to be empathetic towards one another and what empathetic communication actually looks like, then when we have those classroom discussions, those can end up having more of an alienating effect. They can have have a more polarizing effect. They can actually negatively impact students. Even if you feel like, hey, I'm doing a great job as a teacher. If what is coming out of other students' mouths is harming people in your learning community, that is not having the intended effect, right? So it's more than just your checking your own feelings and your own words. It is about teaching what empathetic communication looks like and how you can still hold on to your closely held beliefs without without demonizing other people in your learning community. Do you think that teaching is political in nature? Why or why not? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I don't necessarily view my work as a teacher as the same in the same vein as I view the work that I'm doing now. You know what I mean? Um, they are different. And so do I view my job as a teacher as, as like training social activists for the future? You know, I don't. And I'm not saying that you couldn't have that position if, you, if that was important to you, but that was just not the viewpoint that I held. My view is more in the line of teaching is about helping students learn how to be critical consumers of information and teaching students how to be a useful member of their community. And I mean, I suppose there are some inherently political ideas in some of the things that we, you know, the concepts that we're teaching. Certainly as a government teacher, we talk about politics all day long, but I did not get into being a teacher because I viewed it as a political activity. Um, Nor do I necessarily think that that was my primary role as a government teacher. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like the majority of it isn't and then more recently than not, it sneaks in from time to time where you have to touch the topics, but I 100% agree. Um, What country do you think has the best education system? Well, I mean, when people are looking at countries that do well, you know, on standardized tests, etc., you always look at some of the countries of Northern Europe, like Finland, etc., And in those countries, one of the biggest differences, of course, is that they're very homogenous, right? They are almost everybody that lives in Finland is Finnish. (laughs) And so it is a little, they have share common language and have similar culture, et cetera. And so it is a little bit like comparing apples to oranges. I don't know that we could be like, we should just absolutely adopt everything that Finland does because even though they have great 
scores on standardized tests. I think most educators in the United States would agree that standardized tests are not the measure by which we judge how, you know, how well a school is doing. A lot of American teachers are like, dear God, if we have to spend one more second on a standardized test, I probably will just, like, it just feels like it's, we're just constantly teaching to test, etc. But one of the things that Finland does extraordinarily well is put their money where their mouth is and pay teachers in a manner that demonstrates the respect they deserve in society. I and, feel like I saw it was close to what a doctor would make mm-hmm. yeah. in articles. Yep. Yep. It's a well-paid profession. And as a result, it attracts a certain caliber of individual. And there's that horrible phrase in the United States that like those who can do and those who can't teach, you know what I mean? Like there's this horrible idea that teachers are like they fall into it because they are not capable of doing anything else, which of course is ridiculous. But when we consistently pay teachers so little and when we consistently provide them with such horrible working conditions, we absolutely are driving out the best and brightest. You know, like in in the private sector, if somebody said to you, you will be allowed to use the restroom um, two times per day. You know what I mean? Like that seems ridiculous. <laughs> and if <laughs> or you, you've met your quota and here's a fun size candy bar, I will allow you to wear jeans on mm, mm, jeans. Oh, wow. I've earned a jeans pass. Congratulations <laughs> to me. Um, you know, it's just there's a we could sit here this entire for another entire episode and talk about the ways in which the working conditions let forget the pay. The working conditions are in many ways atrocious, where teachers are being asked to do a job that they are not given any resources for. In the private sector, if you were like, your job is to uh, weld these car doors together. And then you were like, okay, great. Where are the car doors and what do I weld them with? And they were like, well, that is all on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is, that's a ridiculous thing to think about in the private sector, that it's all on you to provide all the resources. And that's also from a top down. I also have empathy, even though I've had some very poor working environments for administrators that are also kind of given the bus with no wheels on it to drive because they don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to collaborate. They don't have efficiency skills. They don't have the leadership training that companies give their managers and their CEOs Mm -hmm. and the same Mm -hmm. sort of accountability and check-ins. And so it is a systematic problem where I think there's, there's a lot of shifting that needs to happen to start treating it like a highly qualified professional career, which is what everybody went into it to be. Mm -hmm. But it's turned into something that you have to take what we give you because you love children. And if you don't take what we give Mm. you, you no longer love children. You don't care about children and you don't care about your community. (laughs) So great segue to Sharon. When did you know that it was time for you to personally leave teaching? Mm. I wanted to move away from where I was living in the DC area back to my hometown, which is where my family is. And when I looked into getting a teaching job in my community, I realized that they had, because of budget shortfalls, they had laid off over 300 teachers in the past couple of years. 
And that I had too much education and experience to even make the paper cut of who they might consider hiring should a position come open. That they were going to hire the cheap teachers and who are recent graduates where they don't have much education and experience or not as much as I have. And so they were going to be able to pay them $30,000 less than they would somebody like me. So I knew it was time when my desire to be near my family with my family was um, greater than my desire to stay in the classroom. That, yeah, that is something that hasn't really come up on the podcast before, but I started this project, I started kind of creating these resources to help teachers transition three years ago. And one of the reasons why was in my brain, because clearly I can see the future, I thought someday there may be a lot of budget cuts and there's no resources for teachers who are looking to transition Mm -hmm. on what types of roles they qualify for outside of the classroom. And so I want to help If everybody gets pink slipped like they did, I think it was 2008 or something Mm -hmm, like that, when mm -hmm. everyone got pink slipped, I'm going to be that person and I'm going to have the resources all built for them. And then COVID happened and it was the exact opposite where everybody (laughs) was looking just to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, But that it's important to remember that there are times in history not long ago that teachers are losing their careers or not able to find something due to budget cuts mm-hmm. as well. When you mm-hmm. started to reevaluate your career identity, who you are, did you learn anything about yourself during that process? Well, I, when I left the classroom, I became an entrepreneur and I owned a business. And as a teacher, it's such a specific skill set right? Like teaching in a classroom is a very specific skill set. And can teachers take a lot of the skills they have learned and successfully apply them in the private sector or in other government roles? For sure. I would, I would hire a former teacher (laughs) any day because they are, their ability to make decisions, multitask, et cetera, is incredible. Um, But one of the things that I did learn is that I am capable of figuring things out, even if I don't have formal education on that topic. Teachers are so used to, for most of us, there is one path to success in being a teacher and that is via the formal education route. We can't just be like, listen, I'm super gifted teacher. Let me in the classroom. We might be able to weasel our way in for an emergency, but we're not gonna be able to stay. And you have to have gone to college, right? There's just no path if you have not attended college. So teachers are have this idea, idea very ingrained in them that the only path to teaching is via higher education. And entrepreneurship doesn't require that. And I felt very um, kind of like, am I supposed to go get an MBA? You know, like kind of waiting for the permission <laughs> of like, then you will be qualified to run a business. And that is just not how a lot of the private sector works. Do you feel like your teacher brain when starting your business when working in your business gives you um, shiny object syndrome a little bit where you're like, now I want to learn all about search engine optimization. I mean, all (laughs) about it. A hundred percent. You know, like as a secondary social studies teacher, um, you have to be, be proficient in the seven different social sciences 
you know, anthropology, economics, geography, history, political science, psychology, sociology. Like you have to learn all of that. And I remember in my teacher training program, I remember saying to my mentor, like, I do not know everything that I am supposed to know. Like, I don't know about all of the ruined, the mummified people in South America. I don't know about that. You know what I mean? I, I remember feeling panicked that I did not know everything there was to know about anthropology and history and psychology and et cetera. And, um, but it did create this need to continually educate myself <laughs> and this need to be like, I will learn everything about the mummies of Ecuador. <laughs> well, you found a niche of an entrepreneur <laughs> that allows you to do so. And mm -hmm. I think that that's a great time to bring up the Sharon Sasso podcast. Mm. So for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more from you, do you want to share a little bit about your podcast, which is mm. wildly popular and oh. they are going to probably binge listen to immediately after this? <laughs> That's so nice. Well, the episodes vary between interviews with interesting people um, and sort of unknown stories from history or unknown stories of a person that maybe you are familiar with, but I'm going to tell you something that you didn't know about them. And I have created this framework, like any good teacher, in which there is a, a different story that originates from a specific state. And so there is a story about Alabama, and there is a story about Georgia, etc. Um, and so that, of course, makes sense in my teacher mind that there needs to be a framework and that it's not just random. Because <laughs> that helps people learn if they can understand the patterns of how this works. So anyway, no, I, I feel you. You're like that meme from I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia. They use it where it's him and all the clip like the board behind him mapping everything out and i think they also <laughs> <laughs> they use it for like steve kornacki also showing like a conspiracy theory drawing all the do dots of the outline of your episodes like this mm -hmm. makes sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well sharon i am so so excited that you have been on here i feel like we went through so many different topics today and I just am so excited for all of the audience members to learn from you on your podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I want to give a huge thank you to Sharon for coming on to this podcast. Make sure to follow her on Instagram at Sharon Says So so you can continue to learn from her. Now, I want you to take all of this amazing information that she's shared and take action and ask for a change. To save you some time, I've even created an email template that you can use. It's gonna be linked in this episode's show notes and is at the top of this episode's transcript so you can find it easily. Invite other teachers to listen to this podcast so they can understand what we're asking for. The more people who email, the better it is and the harder we are to be ignored. Get other teachers on board at your school. Ask your friends, your family, post it on social media. We just cannot accept the status quo for any longer. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you on the next episode of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. Thank you.